What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Halftime Snacks podcast. This show features short interviews that you can listen during the halftime of your favorite sports events. Every Tuesday, I host fun conversations with talented people in the sports industry, where we'll learn from their stories, knowledge, and experiences. So go grab your favorite snack and come snack with us. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm honored to share the mic today with one of the leaders driving the disruption and innovation of the sports industry. His background is as solid as it gets. Economics at Wharton, computer science at Columbia, public speaker, podcast host, writer, guest lecturer, mentor, investor, and more. Today, he's the managing partner of Sharp Alpha Advisors, a venture capital firm focused on sports betting and online gaming technologies. He recently raised a 10 million fund through Sharp Alpha Advisors to invest in seed and Series A sports betting startups. Additionally, he is a mentor for Techstars and the lead sports accelerator and an active advisor on multiple organizations, building and ensuring best practices in developing artificial intelligence. As you can see, this guest is already a legend, and I can guarantee this episode will be absolutely epic. Ladies and gents, Lloyd Danzig. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ronan. That, that... I don't know if I can live quite up to that intro, but I'll, I'll definitely try. <laughs> Lord, welcome to the Halftime Snacks. It's a pleasure to have you here. Let's kick it off with a fun icebreaker. Lloyd, would you rather live a year in space or on a submarine? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, I, 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 like, I like nice views, uh, and I get the sense that on a submarine, you're basically down deep enough where it, it's kind of just pitch black if there even are <laughs> any windows at all. And the claustrophobia of that also feels a little intimidating, whereas in outer space, at least like you get hopefully these these beautiful views. I'm also fascinated uh, by space and by rockets and by the engineering side of it. Uh, so I absolutely certainly hope to go to space. And based on that, I would have to absolutely prefer <laughs> space to submarine. Elon Musk, if you're listening to this episode, you must recruit Lloyd Dancing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lloyd, man, welcome to the Halftime Snack. Um, you have an awesome background and we're going to get into it and in everything that you do currently but let's let's first off start with you uh let's let's understand first what inspired you to pursue a career at the intersection of sports finance and technology can you share with us your inspiration towards that yeah so there are a number of things that i'll point to that inspired my love for the academic and business side of the gambling industry Although truthfully, I never thought it was a possible career path. I just thought it was really cool and interesting. Uh, from a very young age, my dad turned me on to the concept that a roulette wheel has 38 spots, but pays out 36 to one. And that even though over the short term, you don't know what will happen on any given spin, that guarantees that over the long term, the house always wins. That, that was a really fascinating concept to me from a young age. Uh, I definitely would not have called myself a bookie in high school because that makes me sound way tougher and cooler than I was. But I was a person who used an Excel spreadsheet and acted as the house and took all my friends' bets almost because I felt an obligation to the mathematical gods that if I could take odds, bets at the same odds that multi-billion dollar casinos were, if I could be the house, I almost felt almost like an obligation to my future finances to take those bets. 
I was the one who turned my friends on to fantasy sports. I was a fantasy. I have been a fantasy baseball and or football commissioner going back to 2001. Uh, and so, you know, that has always been a big part of my social life and, and my, my leisure time. Uh, and then in, in, in school at university and undergrad business school, I took all sorts of sports business, sports law, sports negotiation classes. But honestly, all of that was really just for the novelty and because I thought it was cool and fun. I started my career on Wall Street, uh, did some fintech stuff, some engineering. Uh, I just happened to kind of be in the right place at the right time in 2018 when the legislation changed. And the combination of what I had studied in financial markets as an investor and what I had personally come to understand about the business of sports betting and in particular online sports betting is what led me to say, okay, this is something awesome that I'm deeply passionate about, that I see a massive opportunity in, uh, and why I kind of left the, the Wall Street and uh, data science world for more of an entrepreneurial pathway in 2018 for sports betting. Lloyd, you and me, we have a lot in common. I mean, my background is also in finance, and I also love statistics and numbers and probabilities, big fan of that. Um, so I, I mostly understand uh, what you do or most most of what you do, but probably most of the audience doesn't really understand how exactly a VC works or what a VC is, uh, at least uh, not, not every country in the world has VCs and that concept of investing in early stage and, you know, risking capital, tons of capital in, in investments that can pay asymmetric or there, there are asymmetric bets that can pay a lot. Uh, on the long term. Um, but I, I wonder if you can explain to the audience what it is that you do on Sharp Alpha Advisors. What is a VC? Or if you want to maybe get very specific, how does a regular week look like for you in Sharp Alpha Advisors? Yeah, let me try to answer all of that together. It's, it's a great question. It's an area of burgeoning interest, particularly in countries that and regions that have not historically been sort of VC backed or a focus of the venture capital world, although especially with the growth of blockchain and, and how the internet flattens the world, that certainly is changing. So a venture capital fund like my fund, Sharp Alpha Fund One, uh, which will hopefully be the first in a long series of venture funds and other types of investment vehicles, a venture capital fund goes out to limited partners, which are the names it gives to its investors to solicit investment. Venture capital firms go to high net worth individuals. They go to other venture capital funds. They go to pension funds, endowments, large, large pools of capital and ask these investors to put money into what is called a blind pool. And that pool of capital that has now been collected from, in Sharp Alpha's case, over 100 different investors is now under the control of the fund manager, which in case of Sharp Alpha is me. And my goal and purpose for that money, just like any startup has a business plan and says, give us your money and we'll do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll get a lot more money back. I also had to do that, but I'm not building a product or a service or a piece of software. My goal is to take that capital and deploy it across a number of different startups that fit my thesis and fit the view of the world that I pitched my investors on, and then track those portfolio companies, try to guide them to a successful outcome, uh, and eventually take all of the proceeds of those investments and distribute those back to the investors. So there are funds on the smaller side at the $5 to $10 million level. 
There are funds all the way on the larger side. The SoftBank Vision Fund is $100 billion. They went out to some of the largest institutions in the world. They collected $100 billion, and they are investing it in different startups. There's a whole other number of nuances in how it actually works and how the capital moves from the investor's pockets to the fund manager's pockets and then into the, uh, in the startup's pockets. But to answer your question about kind of what a typical week looks like, or maybe to answer some of the listeners' questions about, okay, let's say you have this pool of money, what happens next? Uh, it's usually a number of things, all of which I consider to be a lot of fun, uh, which I think is a key element in succeeding in the business because it's basically a 24-hour job. And if you don't find it really enjoyable, uh, it, it's gonna run you down pretty quickly. A, a typical week will consist of a combination of things. I am constantly talking to new startups, new entrepreneurs that I've never spoken to before that send me our pitch deck or come by way of a warm introduction or through one of the many networks for which I am a mentor. And when I'm talking to those guys, I'm trying to understand as quickly as possible, what is their business? What does it do? What will make it successful? What will not make it successful? What are the top two or three accelerants that if we just added to this company would take them to the next level? And most importantly, the biggest question to kind of ask is how big could this company really get? Because what a VC typically tries to do, you mentioned how you usually are going after asymmetric returns. And that's exactly right. At the early stages, at the pre-seed and seed stages, about 99% of deals will fail and will eventually go to zero. And so in the VC world, returns typically follow what's called a power law, where a very small number of the investments make up almost all of the returns. And so in order to do that, you have to spread your bets a bit. You have to reserve some of your capital for follow-on investment. And the rule of thumb is you only make an investment if you could envision that one investment returning the size of your entire fund. So if I'm a $10 million fund and I make an investment and I project that after future investment and dilution, I will own 5% of that company. I better hope that it can sustain at least a $200 million exit, in which case my 5% would be worth 10 million, which is the size of my fund. So that is one part of it. Once I speak with the entrepreneurs and kind of filter out the ones that uh, aren't a good fit or too early, too late or out of scope, then it's a very collaborative process with my limited partners, with other VCs, with key stakeholders, so if a startup pitches me and says, we are going to make a lot of money by selling this product to DraftKings, I'm going to talk to the person at DraftKings who would be in charge of that decision and say, do you know of this product? Do you like it? Is this a reasonable amount that you would pay? If they're going to try to pitch Formula One, then I'll reach out to someone at Liberty Media or Formula One or McLaren Racing and say, hey, are you in the, in the market for these services and things of that nature? Then once you progress there, if you kind of pass all of those filters, there's a much more rigorous but sort of legal and administrative diligence process, background checks, reviewing every document from the formation of your company till the current day and everything in between, uh, all sorts of things of that nature. And then hopefully if things you know, work out, you get an investment, we sign the documents, we wire over the money. Hopefully it's part of an investment round with other VCs and we do a big announcement. And then we turn from investors to almost advisors and make the introductions, figure out how can we be the manifestors of our own destiny here and kind of create the outcomes that we target. 
it feels like a lot of your time also is focused also on uh, selling the prospectus or the plan of the of the of the fund to investors and then sell like selling to the best startups the ones that you do want to invest selling to them on why you are the one that needs to invest on them like like being like the one supporting them uh being an advisor being the one that can connect them with you know the most important key points so it feels like it's a lot of like relationships and and building you know trust and 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 report with both investors and also with entrepreneurs which i find it uh, super fascinating lloyd Let's talk about that specific uh, latest 10 million uh, fund that you just raised. What are the short, medium and long long term goals? I know that uh, you mentioned asymmetric returns. So, of course, in the long term, you're looking for uh, uh, returns that will cover at least the size of the fund, as you spoke uh, a little bit ago. But what about the short and medium term? What, what do you what do you tell? What do you sell for investors? for to collect this money i know it's probably not a lot as you mentioned <laughs> even in the vc space 10 million might not be a lot but what do you what do you propose what is what is the short and medium uh goals that you have in mind for this specific fund yeah uh so you're right 10 million is not a lot in the vc world but it sure felt like a lot to raise uh <laughs> raising a 10 million dollar fund from 100 investors is probably equally as hard and equally as much work as raising a billion dollar fund from a hundred investors. So, so maybe I should have just raised a, you know, a much larger one. And by the way, I just have to say, you really nailed this really interesting uh, duality of the role that I'm in where, yes, it is completely a sales and relationship management job on the investor side, but also when it comes to the best deals, which you have to invest in if you want the best returns and if you want to back the best entrepreneurs, Those guys, even the investors have to sell to. They don't sell to the investors. If their results and their team and their product speak for itself, their rounds will be oversubscribed. They will get to pick and choose which investors they want. And so you are absolutely right about what a big part of my day, especially when it comes to the top, top deals is, is actually me trying to convince someone to take my money rather than them trying to convince me to give it to them. And, and it's, it's a privileged position as an entrepreneur To, to be in if you can build a, you know, a, a great company. You're absolutely right. Uh, I would say the, the medium to long-term uh, plan is to deliver incredible returns and world-class service to investors. The long, long-term is to have a whole series of funds and investment vehicles that invest across the capital structure, across, uh, across stages, and allow investors of any different size and risk profile to use my and my network's expertise and access to make money off the growth of sports betting and this broader category that I refer to as competitive entertainment, of which sports betting is one part, but there are many others. Over the shorter term, uh, part of what I, I think some investors are, are looking for right now in, in something like a sports betting fund, probably the same for a crypto or a cannabis-focused fund, These are hot new emerging industries that are not very well understood by many, both mechanically and in terms of who all the players are and how the puzzle pieces fit together. Uh, so over the short term, a lot of my investors are also hedge fund managers that invest in companies like DraftKings and 
FanDuel and Caesars and MGM. And so a lot of them are looking to extract the information and wisdom and domain expertise from the fund and extrapolate that out to where they invest. I have a lot of other investors who are looking to use the fund as a technology or deal funnel for whatever suits them. So for example, some of the presidents and CEOs of the publicly traded sports betting companies are investors in my fund because they want their companies to purchase the hottest, most cutting edge, innovative technology companies. I have other investors who specialize in providing short-term high interest credit revolvers. And once I have portfolio companies that are at the stage where they need that type of financing, I will be able to hook them up with that part of the network. I'd say also over the short to medium term, uh, I think the goal, the overarching goal is to continue building the, the Sharp Alpha brand while simultaneously working with the absolute best entrepreneurs and founders. And those things kind of feed into one another. As you work with top entrepreneurs, other entrepreneurs want to work with you. And as you have a better, more established brand, you attract more of those top entrepreneurs. And so if you can get yourself into this moving up into the right flywheel, it's a, it's a very attractive place to be. So short-term, medium-term, and long-term, it's all about it's all about investors and investor relations, uh, but it is a mix of strategic initiatives and goals that we and they are trying to accomplish over those time periods. Okay, so 10 million and you want to invest, if, is there a specific amount of like limit that you're planning to invest? Yeah, so the way we're, we're an interesting uh, type of vehicle, because even though we are a small fund, we're backed by some of the largest investors and financial institutions in the world, who, if I'm being honest, wrote checks into my fund that they will never notice missing. And even if I give them a hundred X return, they won't notice that either. Uh, and so what that means is they invested really so that they can put more money into the deals that they like and lead some of the series B's and C's and, and future rounds. And because of that, because I have such a large investor base composed of large check writers, many of whom usually write checks larger than the size of my entire fund, we also, we have a $10 million fund, and then we also have a co-investment vehicle, which facilitates for select deals, our investors putting in additional capital, and we pull that all into one single vehicle, an SPV, a special purpose vehicle. Uh, they are all properly shielded from liability. It's nice and clean, and it's only one line item on the cap table. It's only one vote added for the founders and the board to consider and things of that nature. So depending on whether we are allowing investors to put capital into a deal through the co-investment vehicle or not, we tend to target initial allocations between 250,000 to a million. And then what we hope to do is write between a four to AX larger check in the next round for the companies where things are going well. Uh, and so, you know, that's pretty much how we view it and size the positions and look to construct the portfolio. We'll do about 25 initial allocations into companies. And then once we're done with that, the remainder of the capital in fund one will be used to follow on in subsequent rounds of maybe the four, five, six, seven of those 25 that are real home runs. 
Okay, so I understand now, and I understand that you are mostly investing on sports betting, fantasy sports, collectibles, uh, probably AI as well. I want to talk a little bit on that. Uh, that also. So let's let's talk about fantasy sports and sports sports betting uh, first. I know that you're very bullish. I know that you 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 have this in your DNA since that time you understood the roulette, and um, and I know that you raise this fund because you do believe in it but i wonder if you have a bearish case in your in your head meaning a reason why sports betting and fantasy sports may fail i feel i feel like also listening that uh side can give us an idea on why you're so bullish uh but is there any bearish case that you can share with us about that specific area i can definitely share factors that i believe can significantly limit the growth and or profitability of sports betting and in particular online sports betting in the US. Part of my bullishness on the industry is based on the unique set of factors that make it almost impossible for a total failure to be the case. Really, there are two main ones. First of all, the regulatory changes that are occurring are, are very much a toothpaste cannot be put back in the tube situation. What happened in the U.S. was that the Supreme Court decided that it was unconstitutional for the federal government to decide on behalf of each state whether or not sports betting was allowed in that state. And so what changed in 2018 is now each state in the U.S., New Jersey and New York and Florida and Pennsylvania and California, are deciding individually to legalize sports betting. That's not really a reversible process. So we are certainly moving every day in the direction of more and more people being able to bet in a legal, regulate, regulated, and, and safe ecosystem. The other thing is that similar to the cannabis market, for example, but different from most markets, there already was a built-in gray or black market. In the US, people were betting about $150 billion annually in offshore or unregulated sports books. And so it's not as if we are guessing here that people want to bet on sports. It's more just about capturing that business on behalf of the DraftKings and FanDuel's from the Bovadas and Sportsbook.ags and my bookies of the world. So those are real macro reasons why it's not really possible that sports betting revenues will be zero dollars 10 years from now. But there are, I think, a couple of things that do come to mind when I wonder just how quick will the growth be and how profitable will it be? One thing in particular to note is that right now, every U.S. sports team is in the process of signing a partnership or sponsorship with a sports book. They're putting sports books in the stadiums and venues themselves. They're putting the logos on the team jerseys, all things like that. In Europe and the U.K. right now, everything is moving in the opposite direction. Italy has a nationwide ban on gambling advertising. I believe La Liga banned gambling companies from sponsoring team kits. The EPL is doing the same thing. And so those markets have been around about 15 years longer than the U.S. market. And you have to wonder, with the onslaught of advertising and all that, are we bound for similar frictions with the regulators because of the similar fate that the U.K. and Australia and other European markets fell into? Uh, another on that note is, is responsible gaming uh, in other markets, concerns over the ill effects of deviations from responsible gaming behavior led to a lot of activism, which led to a lot of 
regulatory measures that made it much harder to operate as a gaming operator. For example, in the UK, it is now legally mandated that a slot machine pull online cannot be for more than two pounds. And that is you know, done at the governmental level. There are many markets like Sweden, for example, where there are what are called affordability checks. If you lose a certain amount of money, they make you prove how much is in your account before you can lose more. So it's important that in the US, people keep an eye on the oversaturation of advertising and on responsible gaming and things of that nature. Uh, but those really are only factors. I would also add, there is some uncertainty as to exactly how quick states like New York and California and Florida, in which there is a lot of population, will legalize sports betting and what the tax rates in those states will be. But in my view, these are all kind of short-term things. These might impact whether revenues are realized in 2023 versus 2025. Over the long term, th there isn't much existential risk to the sports betting industry. Uh, it's just about kind of fine-tuning, towing the right lines, and making sure that you deliver an entertainment product uh, and you know don't harm communities uh, or, or individuals in any way because it's not even really good for business, uh, let alone on the social side. It really seems that uh, the bearish case is not as strong from what I'm seeing and what I'm listening from from your opinion. And I understand also why you are so uh, so bullish on on sports betting. Now, in terms of like collectibles, there's, this is something that I want to touch really quickly. The recent boom, you know, NBA Top Shot, F1 Delta Time, these whole all these companies out of a sudden in 2021 uh, had this really impressive boom and an increase in popularity. Do you think it was real? Do you think uh, it is sustainable, or is it just a a sort of like a process that you see happening in the industry and that will just continually grow gradually and gain more popularity and, and users along the way. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, uh, obviously the, the numbers are impossible to ignore in terms of uh, NFT sales, sports related, first half of this year versus last year, and any way you slice it. My take on it is that it is still very hard to say whether any particular digital collectible set or project especially ones that are purely artistic and collectible in nature and, and lack maybe some game-focused utility. <clears throat> It's very hard to say <clears throat> which will be successful, which will not, over what time frame. Certainly, it seems that if you are the digital collectible that has the official license from the league or the movie or whatever it is that, that you're working on, that's a huge leg up. The much more important takeaway that I think is unquestionably transformative here is adoption of these types of user experiences and technologies. So I think the biggest impact of a lot of this will be comfort and awareness and familiarity with the use of NFTs as representations of digital ownership. Uh, you will also, I think, start to see a lot more interoperability. DraftKings has an NFT marketplace and they have a partnership with Tom Brady's autograph platform, I bet they'll roll out a game where you use the autograph moments as the entry to create a fantasy lineup from which you can win money. And, and so without a doubt, in my opinion, you're going to see a lot more tokenized fantasy sports and sports betting products. You're going to see a lot of growth in the play to earn gaming space. And all of this, I, I think, will be hopefully nicely cohesive and interrelated, and whether that's as part of the metaverse or whatever the future of virtual reality is. Uh, 
So in summary, my answer is there definitely will be people who continue to become millionaires by buying, you know, JPEGs and things like that. And if you buy into the right collection at the right time, I'm sure you can make a lot of money. Over a longer time horizon, my bigger bet here is on how important and integral NFTs, smart contracts, and the underlying infrastructure are going to become to the world of sports, sports tech, and gaming. And I think that's the real major takeaway, especially from like a 10 plus year investment horizon. Wow, Lloyd, this has been an absolute masterclass on everything related to finance and sports and sports betting and you and your fund. I appreciate the time. I have so many questions left, but I guess that we're going to leave them for our next halftime snack. You're always welcome uh, to come, Lloyd. But man, I can't leave without asking you a more personal question, and that is, what is the best piece of advice you ever received? Oh, man. Uh, best piece of advice I I've ever received uh, probably comes from someone who is an investor and an advisor to my fund, uh, but who gave me this advice previously uh, when he was more just like a mentor. Uh, and again, maybe this is more investment advice, but I think it actually extrapolates to life advice as well. Uh, and you'll hear people who do a lot of poker and daily fantasy probably echo similar sentiments. Uh, his advice on the investment front, uh, when I was asking him his thoughts on making a particular investment, uh, and it was an investment that was in a really hot space, but maybe had a few red flags associated with it. His advice was to assume that there is some omniscient investment committee that is be going, going to grade me on the quality of the structure that I use to make my decision. And that that's what I am trying to optimize for rather than the specific investment outcome. And that I should make my investments so that such a committee would always give me the best grade on my process, regardless of what the outcomes were. And I think whether it's investing, poker, sports betting, or life, for example, uh, focusing on the process the process and making decisions deliberately and being open to the fact that there's a lot of exogenous factors and noise that could cause any particular outcomes to occur over the short term, but that if you're doing things in the right way over the long term, the expected value will be positive and accretive. Uh, I think that is probably the best advice that I take in the life perspective and then especially uh, on the investment front. very much for tuning in if you enjoy this episode hit the subscribe button and leave a review on apple podcasts if you enjoy learning about the business and technology behind sports make sure you subscribe to the sports tech biz newsletter i'll leave the link in the show notes see you all next week bye bye